Welcome to the Reimagined Podcast, a podcast that seeks to reimagine faith and life and community as we link, learn, and live together. I'm Greg English, along with Brad Hoffman and Brian Dupuy. Today, on episode 56, we have a conversation with Brad Wilcox, director of the National Marriage Project and professor of sociology at the University of Virginia on marriage, parenthood, and success for the family. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hey. Hello. All right. Spring is in the air, man. Yes. The trees are blooming, growing. Yes. Baseball, baseball, yellow is baseball has started. Yellow yep. is showing, showing up. up. Yep. Yep. It's a good time in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. I'm loving it. Yeah. <laughs> My nasal cavities are so grateful right now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I had a doctor's appointment the other day and um, I'm, I'm trying to be honest. You know, I got a little ringing in my ear going on. I don't know what, you know. Mm. Please don't call in and let me know all the problems I have. <laughs> it freaked me out. But she just said, you know, the pollen's in the air and sinus, and sometimes that can do that. Right, and I'm right. like, yep. okay, I got it. Yep. So, hey, yes. you know, during this episode, um, not just this episode, every episode, you know, I take notes while we do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think some of you may know, uh, I'm kind of a, uh, a pen fanatic or a pencil fanatic kind of thing. So I wanted to talk today about the utensil that I use. See, I think, and there is an article out there. Uh, that discusses uh, the underappreciated use of the pencil. Hmm. So I'm the kind of writer, like I have, I have a certain pen that I write with. Yeah. And I also have a, a pencil that I write with that I will let you know about uh, as well. Yes. Is it one of those big fat ones like the? <laughs> oh, you remember the big fat? <laughs> yeah. Ones? Oh, yeah. You know, different awesome. colors. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So think about the pencil you used to use as a kid, you know, growing up and the answer, you had to put the bubble sheet in. Yeah. And it Number had two. to be a what? Number two, two tack on number, number two. A number two pencil. <laughs> but if you go to um, uh, if you go uh, to England or Germany, it's an HB style. I won't get into numbers and letters, but there's sure. a category oh, sure, along sure, with sure. that. They can look sure. it up. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you can look it up. So you know why you know why use a pencil uh, instead of a, a pen or anything like anything like that? And there's a whole idea of it. But the quality of the of the pencil is the way it writes. It, it's smooth, and it all depends on the lead. Uh, how you sharpen it? You know the best way to sharpen a pencil. I can tell you what's not the best is these plastic things they stick out on the shelves now to use. Your teeth? Well, my dad, hey, remember my dad's workbench Maybe had that old yeah. grinder? Yeah, yeah. 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 See, really? see you know really? that because you did that. Number one way to sharpen a pencil and get the best use out of the lead and the, the, the formation of the tip is to sharpen it with a knife. Really? Just whittle, whittle out the... Yes. Yep. Mm. Well, well, we should all that. carry pocket knives. That's, I mean, that's the way to go. So there yeah. are different kinds of, of pencils and different kinds of leads. Uh, if you buy an American or Japanese style uh, pencil, you're going to get a darker lead with that, a different shade. You yeah. get thickness and all. So uh, you know me, as again, if you remember uh, the Christmas present that I asked of that I did not receive from either one of you was my <laughs> fine bound leather journal with papyrus in the middle. Yeah. No, we remember. Um, yeah, yeah, we okay. remember. Yep. Just didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so when I write, I don't like a smudge. So the pen, there's a special pen that I use uh, that will not smudge, will not, you know, have water. It's water resistant and all that. And the pencil I use, I want the same experience. For years, the mechanical pencil I use, it always broke on the end, right? right. It drove me nuts. Right. Sure. That, that, you know why? It's not that I'm writing bad or writing down. It's the, it's the piece on the inside. So this past year, I did a little research. I found the number one pencil in 2019 to purchase. It's called the Kuru Toga. Ah. It's called what? Kuru, K-U-R-U, Toga. 
Okay. That's, that's Hebrew. That's Hebrew yeah. Ooh, for pencil. And, pencil. And I'm here to say, fancy pencil. It doesn't help. I can put the I can put the lead out. You know, a centimeter or an inch, and it doesn't break while I write. It's, really? Yes, it's the way it works on the inside. The mechanism. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. The number two pencil, which I have right here in my hand, uh-huh. alongside number one, uh-huh. is made by Pentel. It's the quicker clicker, and that too uh, is HB lead. Uh, yeah. And it's all about the mechanical on the inside. Well, are we ready to start recording? <laughs> no. I'm just telling you. Uh, you have to take in consideration. So yeah. you don't use you don't the, you don't use like the the school pencil, the like yellow regular pencil. wood pencil. I, I do like a wood pencil, but yeah. I, I have to be honest. The wood pencil I use comes from the art store, and oh, I use yeah, the one yeah. that that has the variance of the shades. Yeah, I like a good. I just like a good pencil. Or, or so you don't or, go into the office in the workroom and no, not sharpen it. in the sharpener. Yeah. No, they don't work. You put it look, and when you put it in the one that's automated, <laughs> yeah. ring, 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 like I'm about, down. To, you get about half the yeah. pencil. <laughs> yes, that's why I'm saying. Sounds like a can opener. That's right. Yeah. So you can halfway right with it, yeah, and then yeah. it's not going to be very good. Yeah. Um, so I highly recommend the um, the Kuru Toga. Kuru Toga. Kuru Toga. So do you not use lead. ink at all? I do use ink. I use a um, uh, I use black ink, and yeah. it's made by Sharpie, and it's and it's a point. Uh, I'm in between a point three and a point seven line of depth when I'm right. So you're the thin. Yes. Right, not the thicker one. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I'm a, I'm I'm a, a thin, thin guy, but I use the thin. Pen. Yeah, I'm a thin. I like a .3 to a .7. Yeah. And most of the yeah. ones are .5s, but yeah. yeah. I look at that stuff when I buy these things. Here's here's a story to it, though. Brian, you don't even write, do you? No. No. <laughs> no. I dictate most <laughs> things. <laughs> so <laughs> I often yell out to people, take a memo. And uh, that's, that's how I get most of it done. <laughs> you know... We're so different, but we're so alike. This is what's great. But uh, anyhow, I have things to take notes on today, so let's move into the podcast. Sounds good. Uh, Today, uh, we welcome Dr. Brad Wilcox to the podcast. Brad is the director of the National Marriage Project and professor of sociology at the University of Virginia and a member of the James Madison Society at Princeton University. Brad's research focuses on marriage, parenthood, cohabitation, relationships, and stability of the family. He is the author and co-author of several books and articles related to gender and parenthood, causes of and consequences of low fertility, how Christianity shapes fathers and husbands, and currently working on a book entitled Soulmates about religion, sex, children, and marriage among African Americans and Latinos. So Brad, as we start uh, into the conversation, tell us a little bit about yourself, your location, and things that you're involved in. Uh, yeah, so I'm based in Charlottesville here at the University of Virginia, and um Went to UVA as, as an undergraduate, actually, and uh, kind of at UVA came to the conclusion that, you know, marriage was uh, a really important way of kind of connecting men to their families. And that was important for me at that point in my life because I was raised uh, by a single mom and to kind of, you know, had this strong kind of intuitive sense that, you know, um, there was something absent in my life, you know, kind of hole in my soul, if you will, um, you know, and not having a dad you know, in my life. And so, you know, as I was sort of studying family life and other issues at UVA kind of had, um, you know, this insight that, you know, if we're interested kind of in, in connecting men, you know, to their kids uh, on a kind of day in and day out basis, we need to think more about uh, marriage and family life more generally. So, 
that was kind of the, the genesis of my interest in this issue. Um, then went on to Princeton, uh, did a graduate degree in sociology, PhD, and uh, did a postdoc at Yale, um, and then and then started teaching here at UVA in 2002, um, and have been basically been here ever since uh, that point, and uh, teach classes on family and statistics and religion here at the University of Virginia. So that's that's the quick sort of summary of kind of the work that I do and, and um, you know, how I kind of got to this place. That's cool. I, that's a, um, you know, it's interesting how oftentimes the journey of life forms our passion in a sense and pursuits. And, and obviously that is, uh, it's, it's neat to know in terms of how that uh, drove you or at least led you into that um, that arena of, of marriage and family, especially men in those relationships. One of the things that I know we had talked about just briefly, um, we had a conversation earlier uh, was about these five C's as it relates to marriage and, and family. And you kind of shared some of those with me and, and you made a couple of comments along the way, but can you kind of, can you unpack that for us and maybe share a little bit about that in terms of the relationship and marriage and those five C's? Yeah. You know, um, a lot of sort of scholars and, and journalists and public intellectuals have been arguing in recent years that a kind of more progressive approach to marriage and family is more likely to lead to a, you know, a good destination. Um, and so a, a number of colleagues and I looked at sort of uh, men and women's, you know, gender attitudes um, and their religion and a bunch of other things. And, you know, what we found was that it's, it is the case that women and men who share a strong commitment to a kind of egalitarian way of dividing things um, and I think actually, you know, are, are living a family life that's consistent with that viewpoint um, are indeed doing better than average um, mm. when it comes and women are doing better than average in those marriages, the wives. Um, but we also found that there was a kind of like a, actually a J-shaped curve for the folks kind of in the, in the muddled middle, you know, ideologically speaking, um, often are doing the worst um, in terms of the quality of their marriages. By contrast, um, women who are religious uh, and, and whose husbands are religious, and particularly women who have kind of a more uh, traditional view, and I mean by that just kind of like they have a sense that, that moms have a unique role to play in the lives of their infants and toddlers, for instance, and dads have a bit more important role to play when it comes to breadwinning. Um, those women, if, if they and their husbands sort of shared a common faith and were engaged in a religious community, um, were actually the happiest women um, in our survey research. And so what it kind of showed to me is that, you know, um, actually it's the women who are um, kind of committed to, um, you know, a more faith-filled perspective and are sharing that commitment with their husbands who are the most likely to be flourishing today in their marriages. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, they're not buying into kind of the 50-50 mindset that kind of dominates our public conversation. And so the question is, what is it about, you know, these kind of neo-traditional marriages today that would explain why these religiously um, traditional women are excelling? And five things, I think, really help to explain, you know, their, um, their success, if you will. And the first is communion. Um, so I think they have a heightened sense of communion um, in their marriage. That's kind of partly emotional in ways we all could think about, you know, um, a kind of we before me spirit that, you know, um, kind of defines their marriage, mm -hmm. um, defines the way that they and their husbands think about married life. 
but it's also practical. And so what I mean by that is that they, for instance, um, you know, have a joint checking account. Um, and a fascinating new study out of Northwestern finds, for instance, that when couples, new couples, newer couples are assigned a joint checking account um, or assigned, you know, separate checking accounts um, in this new in this new study at Northwestern, the couples who were assigned joint checking accounts were much more likely to be flourishing in their first years in their life. So that's kind of an example, practically, wow, of how this union idea, yeah. you know, works works out. That's that's the C, the first C. Uh, the second C is children, and the idea here is that couples who kind of understand, appreciate how much their marriage matters for their kids. Um, and I'm not talking about helicoptering, you know, kind of as many parents today do, unfortunately, where they're kind of constantly trying to make life easier for their kids. I'm talking about kind of recognizing that the quality of their married life, the stability of their married life, you know, matters uh, for their kids. So couples who have this mentality are more likely to be flourishing. Women, wives, more likely to be flourishing. That's the second C. The third C is commitment. And so here, uh, couples who have a shared commitment to lifelong marriage, you know, until death do us part, um, not sort of, they don't have the view that it's sort of we're together for as long as our love shall last mm. kind of idea. Um, and then also couples who have a, a real kind of intentional commitment to fidelity um, in their marriage and realize you have to kind of, you have to kind of, you know, foster fidelity by being intentional about how you relate to you know, other people at work, other people in your you know, community, other people in your neighborhood. Um, and have some boundaries, you know, um, that kind of allow you to protect your marriage, um, you know, and focus your attention on your on your spouse. Those uh, women, those couples are doing better as well. That commitment piece is, is important. The fourth C is cash. Just recognizing having a steady stream of income in, into the household is, is important, obviously. And particularly having a husband who is stably employed. Um, is a big predictor of marital stability and marital quality for uh, for couples and women uh, as well. So that's the fourth C. Um, and I think, you know, it's not politically correct to sort of say this today oftentimes, um, <laughs> but it's it's his income, his employment. It's more likely to matter, for instance, for marital stability. And this comes from a Harvard study by, a, you know, a progressive uh, sociologist. I mean, she found that, you know, when the wife loses her job, no impact uh, on the marriage in terms of marital stability. But when the husband loses his job, you know, much more likely for that couple to kind of uh, hit a, you know, a vicious cycle that ends in divorce court. So again, when it comes to that 4C cash, you know, it's, it's his stable employment that's, that is, you know, um, and I'm not saying you can't, you know, share income, you know, in terms of who's earning, but I'm just saying, I think to be aware of the fact that there's something about his, employment um his connection to the labor force that paradoxically seems to matter for the marriage and the family in, in unique and powerful ways and the fifth c is community and what we see is that couples who are embedded in communities that honor and support their marriages especially religious communities are more likely to be flourishing um and I, the way i tell this is kind of like you know the mark sanford story is kind of like the negative example here right so mark sanford was a republican governor christian um four kids married a bunch of years but he had a bunch of buddies um who were not <laughs> were not good influences and these buddies and he would go on these major you know guys trips every year internationally 
And on one of these trips, you know, they went to some kind of like, you know, hacienda or something in South America. And he met some woman and they were dancing and who knows whatever else. And then he started an affair with this woman um, and then ended up breaking up his marriage, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it was partly because he had surrounded himself with a bunch of guys who were not invested in his marriage and, you know, were not there for him um, and his wife and kids. And so, um, you know, in part, I think because he had, he had put himself into a place of being with guys who were, you know, who, who had a, <laughs> a bad agenda on these international trips, you know, that, that had a devastating impact on his marriage. So obviously, you know, be intentional about the kinds of friends you make and the kinds of communities that you invest in, you know, um, when it comes to your marriage and family life is, is sort of the bottom line. So those are the five C's that are, are I think help to explain in part why um, women who are religious and have a, you know, more kind of what I would say almost like a neo-traditional mindset, you know, are more likely to be flourishing today um, compared to other wives in the U.S., so with the five C's there, as uh, I was listening to them and writing them down, I was thinking it goes back to uh, the idea of communion, you know, having that checking account together. I was thinking about the idea of, of, of having the email account together and some other things that were going in my mind in terms of, of social media um, and, and how that relates. Then I was looking at another one uh, as you were talking about the idea of cash and how it affects the male and the loss of the job. And maybe, maybe that's the ego. Maybe that's the pride that the, the that the male, the identity yeah. crisis that the male may struggle with a little bit more than the idea of community and that we are all being influenced by someone either in one direction or the other. So as an academic researcher, um, are you seeing trends um, that are, are more harmful than others in, in, in this area? Well, you know, it is the case that a lot of couples, you know, cohabit prior to marriage. And so I think the challenge there is that kind of they develop a me first mindset rather than a we first or family first mindset. Because, you know, as a cohabiting couple, they haven't fully, you know, locked in on that joint mutual commitment that marriage is. And so oftentimes we see, for instance, when it comes to money, you know, they've gotten into the habit of keeping separate checking accounts because they were cohabiting prior to marriage. And then they just keep that pattern in, you know, into marriage. And that's, you know, not, as I said before, a good idea. So they have, they have difficulty kind of shifting from a kind of me first, kind of protect yourself mentality that they formed in some ways in the cohabiting relationship and then transitioning to understanding that the best marriages are ones where you're really striving to foster that, you know, we first mentality, not me first mentality as an expression, an authentic expression of your communion as a couple. And then, you know, as kids come along as a family. That's a big one. What, what are the numbers uh, on the cohabitation previous sure, to marriage and, and afterwards? Yeah. So more than 70% of couples today cohabit prior to marriage. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of students that I talked about this issue at UVA think it's a great way to prepare for marriage. What they don't realize is that uh, we still see that couples who grab it prior to marriage are more likely to end up getting divorced. Um, and particularly couples who grab it multiple times with different people are just much, much more likely to end up in divorce court. And the idea there, right, is that kind of if you're cohabiting with a bunch of people, you know, you're kind of learning how to become intimate with someone and then to break up uh, when things don't, you know, go completely according to plan. And that's obviously, uh, you know, a bad habit to yeah. form before you get married to someone. 
Wow. No, that's uh, you, you, we hear those statistics. I mean, we hear that and we see that. I mean, in community as well, there's the cohabitation piece. But uh, but I think you, you said that this, for some, it's like, oh, this is great. Hey, let's try it out and see. And it's like, but no, 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 no. That's not the sequence of it, you know, in a sense from, um, from, yeah. from that piece. You know, I wonder, uh, Brad, when you're sharing this information, um, are, what's the response? Are people are people surprised? Are they taken back when you talk about um, these five C's that you're seeing in this Harvard study? Um, you don't hear a lot of talk about that, so I'm just curious. Uh, what what are the reactions that you typically receive uh, as you talk about this? Yeah, you know, I think on these topics, what we we generally see is that there is a minority of people. Um, you know, who are extremely skeptical or hostile towards the kinds of things that I've been talking about with you all in the, in the first couple of minutes today. Um, and then there are a lot of folks who like could would describe as being in the muddled middle or just kind of like, huh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Right. And they're just kind of like curious. They're not necessarily, you know, agreeing with what I'm talking about, but they're interested. They're, you know, they're kind of trying to figure out if this is, something that, you know, um, you know, makes sense to them. And I think as I give them examples and stories about how these things play out, it begins to become more compelling because, you know, let's be frank, there are a lot of people out there today who are struggling, you know, in dating relationships, cohabiting relationships, marriages. Um, and they kind of recognize that for a lot of people in this country, things aren't going so well on the family front or the love front. And so maybe it's time to rethink, you know, the model. Um, and then there's also a group of folks who are, you know, who are actually um, in some ways because the culture has become so, I think, um, uh, confused about love and marriage. Um, they've actually kind of moved in a very different direction and, and they're very receptive to what I have to say. So a question for you, and just as taking an example, <clears throat> like uh, we live in the suburbs uh, here in uh, Hanover. Uh, we are, you know, we have uh, lots of families. And so you've got uh, a husband, a wife and three kids and, you know, the mortgage and the house and the job, uh, jobs, plural, probably and everything else and kids spread out. And what we find in our, our arena is there are challenges with mental health, there are ch challenges with physical health, there are challenges professionally and just kind of working through this new dynamic of, of pandemic and post-pandemic uh, kind of lifestyle and what's going on. Um, but what do you say to that typical, maybe what we call typical for us, suburban family, um, that what do you say to them about well-being and health in a relationship? What are some of the first things that you would talk about and how would you encourage them? Well, you know, one thing that I would say is, you know, this is building on the work of John Gottman, who's a psychologist at the University of Washington. Um, it's just to sort of understand that, you know, conflict and disappointment um, and, you know, um, anger at times, these things are all part and parcel of married life. Um, and that, you know, every marriage has chapters that are, you know, um, kind of difficult or, um, you know, or, or that there's sort of trial and tribulation are a part and parcel of, um, of life in general and marriage and family in particular. And so, um, 
and, and in fact, in my own research, I find that about, you know, on any given point in time, about 20% of people who are in church um, on any given Sunday are not happily married, you know, right. so just to recognize that there are, there are plenty of folks, you know, sitting in the pews who may even put up obviously a good front on Sunday, but if you were to kind of pull them aside and really get them to speak honestly, you know, would tell you that they're upset or, or unhappy at, at this point in their marriage. And so that's kind of just sort of like normalizing just this idea that, you know, tough times in married life are, you know, are completely um, natural and common. And so that's one thing that I, I want people to know, just so that they feel like they're not alone mm-hmm. when it comes to sort of suffering, you know, in their marriages at certain points in time. So that's, that's one part of what I would say. Um, the second thing though, that I would say is that, you know, obviously you need to go beyond that and to recognize, as Gottman's research tells us, that kind of in, in a good marriage, a good relationship, you're looking for about five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. And so what that means concretely is that it's important for all of us in our marriages to be, you know, to be generous, to be affectionate, to be thankful, to be um, empathetic, um, and to be actively thinking about ways that we can be more generous, you know, towards our spouse. Um, And so, you know, what my own research shows, for instance, is that both wives and husbands who um, are kind of doing little things on a regular basis to express affection or, you know, uh, devotion to their spouse, um, not only, you know, not surprisingly have, have spouses who are happier, but also are themselves more likely to be, um, you know, happily married. So there's something about kind of being generous in your marriage. And again, this is, you know, this is not going to come as a surprise to any of you guys, but um, because it aligns with, you know, things that you would be talking about on Sunday. Um, but it is the case just practically empirically that kind of cultivating that spirit of generosity in your marriage is in an intentional way um, is, you know, a really important um, way to, keep your married life, um, you know, um, strong. Um, but again, I, I mean, I, I can't say enough, like when you've got kids and, and work and, you know, and church and athletics, you know, um, and volunteering, you know, all these things happening, I think it's important for a lot of middle-aged couples just to understand and appreciate, you know, it's not always going to be a cakewalk there are going to be times you don't feel connected to your spouse, you know, that's okay. Like not mm-hmm. every, you know, not every moment in your marriage is, is going to be that, you know, um, that in, is going to express that intense emotional communion. Um, but you're building a life together, you're building a family together. And that's the important thing to kind of keep in mind in all of this. Yeah. I just think about the importance of relationships uh, with other couples and uh, how how that can impact you because um, if we're talking about you know recognizing hey there's going to be times where you're not feeling this right there's going to be times where it seems like it's not working but you you walk beside another couple and they're going to be like oh yeah no we have that like that's you know we 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 have that <laughs> that's the normalizing yeah, right yeah, we have that yeah, three yeah. times a year we feel like you know what I mean like we have somebody else though to to really walk walk beside you and to help you recognize wait that's that's what happens. Uh, it doesn't mean it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that, uh, there, there are better opportunities, better days, uh, as you continue to walk in that. So that's the importance of the community piece within the five C's, but yeah. which leads me to the question, Brad, that community has been, uh, disrupted over the last year. 
uh, or so based on COVID, schools being out, work staying at home. So our ability maybe to connect. Maybe we have too much community. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, just yeah. joking. Just joking. But the, so the ability to connect, trouble for that. Yeah, <laughs> to connect to the outside community or that influence may, may have been removed and gone. Uh, yeah. And now we got to get in a habit of reintroducing community back so we can have healthy relationship, but the community inside the house. So going forward, uh, where we are now, are there some non-negotiables? Are there things that must be in the family atmosphere as we move forward? Well, I mean, just to speak to the first part of your question, I do think it's really important. I mean, you know, as people get vaccinated, you know, um, to make that transition as you know quickly as possible to you know kind of in-person communities that might mean you know having your small group again you know in person um that means you know uh going to your church on sunday in person you know it means you know having that coffee with a friend um you know in person so i think in terms of kind of community you're right it's kind of gone dormant in some important ways in covid time and so um you know aristotle said we're social animals um and we've not been (laughs) able to kind of um, live that way for the last year um and that's just in many important ways uh, a terrible thing um so i would definitely encourage your listeners to kind of move as quickly as possible to that in-person um you know expression of of community um, and, um, you know, because it, um, it also lessens the load, you know, uh, on the home front in terms of like not, you know, depending too much on your spouse for your emotional and social welfare. So there's, you have a couple of resources I just wanted to bring up as we, as we come to a close on today that, uh, that you've been a part of, uh, writing different things in regard to gender and parenthood. Um, and uh, you have a new book uh, that's coming out on soulmates, the study of, of sex, children, marriage among African-Americans and Latinos. Uh, anything you want to uh, say say about that work? Um, sure. I think, you know, the best way to kind of connect with both the work that I'm doing and that a lot of colleagues are doing um, is to go to family-studies.org. Uh, again, familystudies.org, you know, if you're on, uh, on Google or other search engines, and we have uh, new postings um, Monday through uh, Thursday on everything from dating to uh, divorce to fidelity to um, uh, to parenting uh, teens when it comes to electronics. Um, and we actually just hit the million mark this uh, wow. this April first um, in terms of unique unique visitors this uh, this year. Um, so that's one place to come and And what's the name of that again yeah it's familystudies.org um and it's a combination of kind of practical research for couples and parents um and people looking to get married as well (laughs) um and uh, then it's also uh we've so we've got a mix of kind of scholars and public intellectuals writing for us um at family studies and we really try to make the you know the research and writing there as accessible to the intelligently public as possible (laughs) Um, and as I said, we've, for the first time we've hit a million visitors, uh, in the wow. first three months of this, this calendar year. Um, and then I'm at, at Wilcox NMP at Twitter. Um, and that's another place to kind of, um, you know, get some of this stuff, but, um, you know, we've got really a team of folks at these family studies who are trying to think, you know, in a very relevant 
and um, at the same time, you know, hopefully profound way about things ranging from sex to dating to marriage to divorce. Um, and, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot happening today and we think people need to be more intentional about cultivating strong families in a culture that doesn't really give them a lot of resources in, in that department. Well, that's really good conversation. I appreciate you Absolutely. taking the time Absolutely. to uh, join us and uh, talk about particularly these these five C's and the impact of family and marriage on, on community uh, in which we live and, and work and play in. And uh, so thank you, Brad, for spending time with us today on the podcast. Well, thanks, gentlemen, for having me on. I, I'm grateful to the work you're doing as well on, uh, on the family front. Oh, thanks, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on the Reimagine Podcast. As always, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and download any of the episodes and share and rate them. Also, check us out on reimaginecast.com. So for Brad and Brian, I'm Greg. Thanks for listening to the Reimagine Podcast.